All right, well, look, I am in Melbourne, Australia today. I am joined by what I regard as one of the industry legends, Tim Nuttall. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me along. So, wind back the clock a little bit. I think I met you almost 10 years ago, I think, when I was working at Base Plan. I actually got a bit of a funny story. I, I was 21 at the time, and a support ticket came through to base plan. That's obviously what you use at the moment for your ERP. And somehow it landed on my desk. I don't know what happened, it landed on my desk. And then Andrew Ferry came out and said, what are you doing? Like, why, you don't, like, make sure you don't stuff this up. It's Tim Nuttall. And I was like, Who, who's Tim Nuttall? <laughs> Who is this infamous person? And I went down and met you in person and like, you were the kindest and like most welcoming person. So I think from like the moment I joined the industry, I always found you to be one of the very like welcoming um, and like helpful. Like you're very honest and wanting to help people as well. And so, yeah, I thank you for your help in the industry. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. Nice. Thanks for the nice comments. <laughs> of course. So, so Tim, you you run Access Hire in Melbourne. Yep. Now, maybe before we get into Access Hire, I want to understand the roots of how you got into the industry. Sure. So I've heard some stuff about how you got into the industry, but I want to hear it from you Ma- personally. Maybe you should tell me first. Oh. And then <laughs> I can fill in the gaps. I can smart. make up my own, my own uh, stories. So like, what was your first entry point into the equipment sector? Uh, well, I started with, uh, with Rec Air High, who a lot of people, uh, some of the older guys will know quite well. Um, but they were a company that were one of the first into the rental industry, started fr- from a, a setup from Wheel and the Wrecker, they started with a couple of compressors, and when I joined them, they had five branches in Victoria and they had two in New South Wales. And uh, I'd come down from the bush, I'd spent two years doing an arts degree, uh, which wasn't sort of taking me where I wanted to go, so I headed off to Melbourne as a young country kid and decided to have a crack and see what... Uh, so started labouring, hang up green sheepskins out in the western suburbs of Melbourne, and um, that probably wasn't going in the direction I wanted. And looked in the paper and saw an ad that said, this is a bit sexist these days, but two intelligent young men required was the, was the ad. And I thought, well, that's gotta be me. And uh, <laughs> applied for a, a position with Rec Air Hire at, Co- at their Coburg branch, was the head office and um, was lucky enough to get it. And the, the rest is history, as they say, really. I was with 20 years with Rec Air Hire, worked my way up from hire controller, through to a assistant state manager, through to the into a sales role at Latro- in Latrobe Valley at the Loyang Power Station, which was the biggest construction site in Australia by probably double the next, and uh, and then fortunate enough to make branch manager at the age of 28 with 25 people reporting to me and going as hard as you could go in the rental industry. So uh, it was a pretty good pretty good learning ground, really. Wow. Yeah. So so when you first joined the industry, did you have much knowledge of of the equipment that they rented out? No, I, I, no, no knowledge at all, really, when I first started. And I, you know, I often say to young people, it took me 12 months to work out roughly, I'm still learning, but to, to learn roughly what, what it worked. You know, I couldn't work out, you know, like, how do they, how do they keep, you know, where's the next job coming from and, and why doesn't it just stop? You know, you're only as good as the last phone call. Mm. So if the phone calls stop, what happens? You know, I just couldn't. And how do you work out the pricing? You know, like you, you, we'd be quoting prices and but it took me ages to just get a concept of how all that fitted together and, and what made a, a high company tick. And, but I had, I had a, my dad passed away when I was 10 
we had a shed full of kit. We, my dad had built a speedboat. We had motorbike bits and pieces. Grew up with you know building motorbikes out of push bike frames. So grew up with a mechanical sort of background with machinery and plumbing and all those sort of bits. So you know the the equipment suited you know that just fitted with the sort of stuff that I liked and and the other thing that I you know in the in the labouring job that I had you were always looking at the clock you know like it was so boring and you were hanging up sheepskins and so when you hit the rental industry it was so busy like we were absolutely flying when I joined in 1976 um, you never got a chance to look at the clock which which I liked, you know, you, you just worked your butt off, you know, you started early, you finished late and you worked and you worked Sunday mornings and and uh, I just liked it, you know, yeah. I just liked the activity and being busy and so it was good, yeah. So, so why do you think you were successful at Rec Air? Uh, well, I was prepared to do what it took, basically, you know, like I can remember when I first started, they asked if anyone wanted to work on the weekend to do a stock take and not get paid. And I think I was the only one in the company that said yes. Okay. <laughs> and, and they all, you know, the guys I was working with, what are you doing? And I said, oh, well, you know. And, and you know, this is, um, my brother once said, uh, you're working too hard, you, you know, the company's taking advantage of you, and, you know, you, and, and I said to him, look, if I work hard and give it 110%, I might get lucky. It might, you know, it might pay off somewhere down. I didn't know whether it was going to, but it might just pay off. And I've always worked hard, you know. I've given 110% to everything I've done. And that applied, you know, I, I put in the hard yards and learning the equipment, trying to understand, you know, the fact that the first 12 months I couldn't understand it. I, I work hard at trying to understand what's going on around me, you know, and not mm. all the bit, trying to put all the bits together. So I think, you know, a good work ethic goes a long way. Yeah. Um, and wanting to as well, you know, I, I wanted to, although I, I should explain, um, I was probably 24 years old, and so I started when I was 21, and, and then I was still a bit unsure as a young person, so I went back and tried to get into physical education, you know, I, I had a look at being a social worker, you know, I thought about other careers even while I was working at Rec Air, so it wasn't an instant, this is the way for me for the rest of my life, but... Um, when you don't have a dad and you don't have... I mean, mum was worked in a shop in the country town and you're looking for where's all this going and trying to work it out. The, 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 the best thing about Rec was that it was a really positive environment. There were really people that were focused on positive attitude and, you know. Um, but when I was about 24 as a young guy, I'm looking around for someone who's going to bail me out, you know, like who, where's, where's the bunk up coming around? Who, you know, and I worked out no one was coming. You know, it was on me to make a life myself and work out how it was going to work. And so I decided I'd be a businessman. I didn't know what that meant. But okay. <laughs> so I was going to be a businessman, right? Not a phys ed teacher, not a social worker. And I even thought about being a union rep at one stage. And, uh, so, and so I just went about working on being a businessman, you know, whatever it took to, you know. And, and I was probably lucky somewhere in amongst all that I bought a self-improvement program for $300, which at that stage is probably equivalent of three grand these days, when I had no money. And it was about goal setting and planning and, you know, just ways of um, improving your lot in life. And so, yeah, make, made a decision and 
got on with the process. So, yeah. So, 1976, you said? 76. 76. Yep. What was the hire industry like then? Well, it was going really fast. Like, like we had five hire controllers in an office and a separate bookman because it was so busy that one person couldn't do the book. Yeah, well, no, sorry, we couldn't have a hire controller doing the book. Mm. We had to have a separate... So we do a page and a half, so that's about equivalent of about 40 or 50 deliveries a day. So it was going this pretty is all hard. handwritten? All handwritten, yep. Handwritten contracts. Um, we had computers, but they were the control alt, you know, it wasn't very friendly, you know, <laughs> and blue screens. And, you know, it was basic, pretty basic stuff that you just entered. Someone, in, we didn't enter it. They, you know, we had yeah, uh, people behind the scenes entering the contracts so that we could then produce invoices and, and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, so it was busy and we had a lot of trucks coming and going and, yeah. but And, and it was, I mean, a lot of that we had... Recare had a full range of equipment. Like it was a general rental company with everything, you know, mm. like compressors, jackhammers, generators, pumps, you know, the, the works, toilets. And then, you know, access equipment came on at a much later date. The access equipment didn't exist when I started yeah. in the rental game. So, which is probably hard for people to believe. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, uh, it was fun, you know. And what about the rates back then? Uh, well, we, well, you know, the, I didn't really know where rates came from when I first started, you know, and, and, you know, I was a fairly junior sort of person, you know, right through until you become a salesperson, you're not really too familiar with where the rates are coming from and how they're being quoted and, you you know, the managers would tell you what, you know, if you had to give a price, what it should be and, um, you know, all I remember back then was that you'd ask the question, well, how do you work out what the rate is? And, um, and they said, oh, well, it's sort of on an 80-week payback. And you go, well, what, what is it? well, to do that, you had to know what it cost to start with, which you generally didn't know, you know. <laughs> and then it sort of later on it developed into 1% of the purchase price was sort of a number, you know, that floated around. But there wasn't, you know, the science of all that was pretty... I don't know where they got the numbers from, Mark, to be honest. <laughs> I don't but, know. but, like, from a, a purchase to rate percentage, let's just say, or average rental rate, in the 80s compared to today? Got no idea. Well, I can tell you. I can tell you how I work it out now because I spent a lot of time with accountants and, uh, you know, when Brambles owned Rec Air, who they bought later, they, you know, we had financial models, which I still have, where you put in the net present value and the internal mm-hmm. rate of return and you put in the interest rate you expect to get and all that stuff. Yeah, we'll talk about... I want to talk about that as well. We'll talk about that later. But... but Back then, but no. But I guess my point I, I want to talk about is I remember I was talking to Greg Parfit, yeah, and he was saying, in the nineties, like the the price for a nineteen foot scissor was roughly the same rate that it is today, uh, yes. and he was working on the Crown Casino, I think it was, yes, and like for me that's crazy, the fact that the rate is the same and it, it's 25, 20 years ago, is insane. So I guess my question was, in the eighties, were the rates quite high relative to today? as well, or they were quite low, like today as well? Um, I think the rate's been eroded over time. For, for example, when I bought Access Hire 18 years ago, the rate now is half of what it was back then. But the purchase price has also come down. You know, like it used to be for a 19 foot scissor back in the 80s, about $30,000 for, for a 19 foot scissor. 
That would use, you know, so now now you can buy one for pick a number, say eighteen thousand. That'd be mm. without fudging the number too much, because you know there's a range of prices, a retail price, and then there's the prices the big guys pay, and there's a price mine's yeah. in the middle somewhere. So, but somewhere the the capital cost had come down significantly up until about twelve months ago, and now it's going back up due to supply shortages and exchange rates and so so the, the price to buy the capital has started to go on back go back up for the first time in about 30 years yeah and you know the challenge now to our industry is what are we going to do with the rate you know because we've consistently chased the rate downwards as the capital cost has come down the people have been prepared to discount the rate even further um, now it's going the other way it's going to be interesting to see if the industry can turn it around yeah let's hope so yeah, well, if the finance of those <laughs> equipment is going up, you would assume that the rate needs to go well, up. Well, you can't assume anything in this yeah, yeah, yeah. in this caper, Mark. You just it's all dependent on your competitors and whether they can see the light. You know that that's where it should be heading, and then you only need one of our competitors to decide that they haven't. No, we're not going to do it, and that forces everybody else to stay where they are for a lot longer. So mm. yeah, it's a yeah. it's a fairly dynamic industry from a pricing point of view, and you know, I could spend another hour telling you. <laughs> we will talk about pricing again on the podcast. Cool. So, so branch manager at yep. Recare. Yep. Then what happened? Uh, well, I was given the opportunity to come back to Melbourne as a sales supervisor, and uh, that was a great job looking after the salespeople and working for a sales manager. And then I did that for a while, and then the position of assistant state manager, really an operations type manager, came up working for this and my boss told me he was going to get it and I was going to be the sales manager, which I was pretty happy about, you know, and as it turned out, I ended up getting the uh, operations manager's job. So I was then in charge back in the late 80s of 18 branches around the country and uh, uh, it was pretty busy. We were, I did that for about probably six years. We were absolutely flying in the mid, you know, mid to late 80s. We were boom times. Um, couldn't get enough equipment quickly enough. It was just absolutely flying. So, yeah. And then, and then what happened? Well, Brambles bought Recair. And that was a significant... It, there was a management buyout from Recair management put together that didn't quite get up. Um, Brambles bought us. It was a... Uh, about six months before the 90s recession. So good timing for them. <laughs> uh, gave us all, all a lot of challenges. And, and my boss at the time, Michael Conroy, who, who had, had the opportunity to, you know, there was a lot of autonomy in Rec Air. It was run by some really good managers, Ray Kelsey, Mike Flynn, who a lot of the people will know. And um, of course, when you get new owners coming in, corporate, very accounting driven. Uh, they want to have their own people in place. Uh, so Max Williams was our general manager, came in from Brambles. Um, he had a job to do. Unfortunately for Max, six months into the, the acquisition, we hit the 90s recession and lost 45% of our business in six months. So there were some significant challenges for everybody trying to keep the wheels on and uh, and make it all work. And, and Michael decided that he didn't want to be party of the new acquisition and you know found the lack of autonomy that came with that change quite difficult and so he he uh, took other opportunities and I was 
lucky enough to get the uh, oh, lucky enough in in the middle of a '90s recession um, to get the job as state manager. So uh, uh, the end result of that was I had to put off 150 people, which I personally went and spoke to, and uh, we tried to turn the business around, which. After three years, we managed to get the return on investment back into shape and uh, where they expected it. But um, somewhere along that path, I realised that that uh, Rec Air was never going to be the same and the investment wasn't being put into the company to keep it together and to make it prosperous. So I uh, took an opportunity to leave the hire industry and went and worked for CleanAway as a management development program within Brambles and worked for CleanAway for two years, you know, looking after their municipal waste industry out in the um, eastern suburbs of Melbourne, and and uh, then went on and looked after their industrial waste collection right across the whole of Melbourne for for a, a period of time. <coughs> period of time, excuse me. So, so, a couple of questions there. Let's just go back to you laying off 150 people. Yes. No fun. Talk, talk me through that emotional roller well, coaster. Well, well, tough. You know, tough. Got, got, you know, like have a bit of a philosophy, that, and that is that if you haven't got the courage to make the hard decisions, then someone will make a hard decision about you, and they'll put someone in who, who can make the hard decisions. Mm -hmm. Because, and in the middle of it, um, one of the people I work with, Gary Northover, who some people know, you know he was he was uh, very successful in setting up Cap Rentals in Victoria, and uh, um, his father was a, a union head of one of the unions. I can't remember which one it was. And one day there, we're sitting trying to decide who goes, who stays, and I said, "What's all?" I said, "What's all this about?" I, well, I said to the management team, you know, because we'd worked together. I said, "What's all this about?" He said, "Well, here's the here's the here's the theory." Um, if you don't let some go, they'll all go, you know? So if you don't let, you know, half of the team go, then all the team will go because the whole lot will collapse. Mm. And that sort of made a bit of sense to me, you know? And, and uh, But it wasn't easy, you know? Like some of the people I was going up to during that period, I'd worked with for 15 years. And they were good people and they were doing a good job. And, but there just wasn't the work. You know, like I often say to people, if you're under 40 years of age, or it's even more than that now, uh, and you, if you weren't working in the 90s, then you haven't seen a recession. So people don't understand, a lot of people don't understand what a real recession where you lose half your business in six months looks like. And it can be tough, you know? And so how did you keep it all together mentally during that period, do you think? Uh, I had pains in my chest for six months. So I guess the short answer is it's tough, you know, it's pretty tough. You're, you're going up and putting 150 people off. There's, it's not without some, some baggage, you know. But, but the other thing is that you, you probably learn more in those tough times than you learn when it's going pretty well, you know. And, and so you learn smart. Like I ended up, for example, I was fortunate I, I'd seen... A gentleman who ran McConnell Dow, managing director, I'd been able to go and visit him a couple of times, and he was signing, he had sites all over the country, but he signed off on every invoice in his organisation. I thought, well, let's, you know. So when we got into really tough times, I thought, I might go and sign every invoice and just see where the money's going, you know? And, and it was a real eye-opener. 
So if you ever want to know what's happening in your business, go and sign off on, on every <laughs> invoice and you go, you go, what's this? You know, like it's just, a, it's just a real light bulb moment sometimes on, gee, is that where the money's going? And I still do it. I still sign every invoice that we pay in our organisation so that I know where the money's going. Mm. And so those tough lessons that you learn in really tough times, um, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I've learned some interesting lessons about how you manage restructure, you know, and I've heard there's a company going through restructure at the moment and the way they're going about it is, uh, is not working very well for them. They've got people jumping ship all over the place. And, and part of that is because they flagged the change in advance before they've made the decision of who's staying and who's going, you know. So if, you, if you're making major structural changes to your business, you, you make them behind closed doors make a clear decision about what has to happen for the survival of the organisation. Um, you go and talk to the people who uh, unfortunately have to leave, but you very quickly go and talk to the ones that are staying, you know? Mm. Or in some cases, you just talk to the people who you want to stay before you let the people know who, so that the uncertainty of the change is taken out of the deal, you know? and. And reassure the ones that you that you want to stay that that there's you know that they're not on the list mm. and they're not likely to be on the list and that way you it's very important to try. Now, the other thing I was going to say, I'm sorry, and it's it is a, re, a it's a very good point is that that the most important thing when you're letting people go is that you do it in the best possible way because the people who are staying are watching what you're doing to the ones that are leaving. And a lot of people miss this point. They treat people on the way out quite poorly, where it's really important that you look after the people that are leaving because everyone else who's staying is looking at them and going, well, I remember. How's he, how is he treating, how are they treating the people that are leaving? Because that's, they, you know, they really don't care. You know, if you really care about the ones that are leaving and it's a decision you've had to make because you've got no control over the economy, then the people who are staying can see that you've got compassion and you're mm. serious about looking after them properly. You know, so. So then, how did you get back into the equipment industry? Uh, well, the clean away job with you know in the waste industry didn't go so well. The manager I was working for and, a, a, and he and I didn't get on very well. Um, I'll probably prefer not to go into all the details. Of sure. <laughs> we can we can skip that part. But anyway, to say we didn't get on, and I told him he probably should pay me a year's salary, and I'll go. And eventually, the board got involved, and that's what he was. He had to do. But I so I went back to Rec Air for twelve months, and if I left within twelve months, I got a year's salary. So I had to leave. And if I could leave and get a year's salary you know, get a job straight away and get the year's salary. That was money in the bank for my family. And fortunately, um, about 11 months before I was about to leave, I, JLG and I were able to talk to each other and I joined JLG. So I left Rec Air. I did some uh, assignment work for, for Max Williams and, and the company. I went to Sydney for five months, travelling up and back. So it wasn't it wasn't an easy mm. <laughs> period. It wasn't like I was sitting back enjoying it, just having a free ride. But I so I travelled to Sydney and back Monday to Friday and uh, and helped Gary Northover, who was looking after the New South Wales branch at the time. And I did a strategic review of the Western Australian business for the for the company. And the end result of that was that they bought Coburn Hire. So there were some good things done during that 12-month period, but the end result was I had to get out of rec air and, and fortunately joined JLG. Yeah, so, and so what was your first role at JLG? 
Uh, my first role was looking after Australia and New Zealand as the general manager. And I did that for probably two years. And then uh, my boss, Jeff Campbell, who a lot of people in our industry know, who's, uh, who's quite a brilliant person, um, uh, Bill Lasky, who was the president of JLG, said he's strategically the smartest person he's ever met. So it's not a bad rap. Uh, and he did an awesome job in, in Europe when he went there. You know, like uh, growing the business for JLG was just an outstanding result. So my, Jeff was my boss. He was living in London and I was looking after Australia. And then he gave me the opportunity to look after the whole of Asia, which was everything from India through right through Asia up into, you know, Japan, China. So I did that for probably six or seven years. And uh, yeah. And how helpful was it you working in the higher industry and then joining an OEM, do you think? Uh, I think it's, I think it was you know, really good that you... Because something like 80% of all pieces of access equipment go into the higher industry. So, although probably a little bit less in Asia because the higher industry was still developed, in developing mm -hmm. stages. Although, like in places like Singapore with Galman, Desmond Ong, he, he was a very sophisticated operator. You know, Hong Kong was operating fairly well. Rental, but in other places, they were still learning about rental, trying to understand. In China, it was a very, basically didn't exist at all. You know, in India, mm. it didn't exist when I was going to India, uh, where now it's quite, quite developed. So, yeah, it was a, an interesting market. But we went, in, in Asia, we went to market in, a, in the traditional form where you had distributors in each country. Often those distributors were rental companies. So that's mm. the more traditional um, channel to market, if you like. Where in Australia, the manufacturers go direct to market themselves, except in some cases they have retail um, agents, uh, but to the rental companies, they generally go direct. Mm. So, and Jeff Campbell took, that model, the Australian model to Europe and sort of changed the face of the way the company went to market in Europe, which was, you know, turned out to be quite successful and mm. still the model they use in a lot of places. So, yeah. Wow. And so, so doing that JLG, so obviously Access High is focused on access equipment. Yep. Working at JLG, did that sort of pique your interest in eventually buying and starting your own high company? Um, well, Probably not. I never had a great ambition to to own my own company, although I'd made a strategic family decision that I wouldn't risk uh, our family money, if you like, for want of a better description, um, on, on owning something or buying something until my children's education was complete. You know, we wanted them to have a private school education and, and if you risk everything you own and go broke, they don't get their education. So I'd made a strategic decision to stay in corporate type life. Um, but I'd progressively worked, I left JLG because of the travel, basically. It was, I really enjoyed the international business. I really enjoyed the work when I got there. I just didn't enjoy being away from home all the time. You know, like I was 10 days a month out of the country and then when I got home, I was still traveling yeah. around Australia and New Zealand. So, uh, and, I remember sitting in Hong Kong one weekend. My kids were getting into their late teen years. Um, I was there by myself because on the weekend when you're away doing business, all the people you're dealing with go home to their families and you go to the hotel. So, and I'm sitting there thinking, well, it's gonna come a point where Jan's, my wife's sitting at home. 
by herself because the kids are off doing what they want to do. They've grown up. And I'll be sitting in a hotel in Hong Kong and that wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> so, so I made a decision that was time for me to get out of JLG. And the kids were at the point where their education was under control. So I set a goal to get out of JLG and get home. And if I could, get some equity in a business. And within three months of setting that goal, Ready Hire in New Zealand approached me and asked me if I'd be the managing director of their business in Australia, which was a small hire business in Queensland, which was the general rental part of Dompra Hire. Okay. And Dompra had gone um, gone into liquidation at that stage. And, and uh, Ready Hire bought the general equipment assets in Queensland and Conplan bought the compaction assets of Dompra in Queensland. So uh, it seemed like a good option because I was going to own 25% of the Ready Hire business in Australia. Sounds pretty good. Um, but the day I started, it was the Australian business was basically broke, which I didn't realise when I took the job. Twenty-five percent of a broke business. <laughs> I quickly worked out, Mark, that twenty-five percent of nothing is nothing. <laughs> so, um, but so I went. I was supposed to do a. I hope this is not too boring for everyone. I, I, I flew into Palmerston North. I was supposed to do a greet meet and greet up through New Zealand to all the branches to fly home back and start working in Australia. Uh, the managing director at the time rang me and said, the directors are sick of sending money to Australia. What do you need? I said, well, you better send me the P&L, let me have a look. And all, he did that. And by Sunday afternoon when I was flying to Palmerston, I worked out there was red ink everywhere. And there was, so I flew to Palmerston. The branch manager drove me halfway, the managing director picked me up and I went into a three-day meeting with liquidators to work out whether I had a job, whether I was shutting the whole lot down and I was going home with no employment, wow. or whether I could turn the business around and make something of it. So I put together an hour and a half presentation of what I thought I could do. I looked at the utilisation of the fleet and realised there was some capacity there and jumped on a plane and, and they were over, overcooked on the on the number of people. They hadn't made any adjustments since Don Pryor had, you know, run into, into some issues. So I jumped on a plane, went to Queensland, let nine people go out of a team of not that many and uh, progressively started to put the wheels back on. So it <clears throat> took two years, um, eventually sold the business to National Hire, Stephen Donnelly and Greg and Adrian. Uh, were kind enough to take it off our hands in the end and we got the money back, the Kiwis got their $2 million back. And uh, uh, But just when that was happening, um, I realised I was working my way out of a job with Ready Hire because they'd sold their New Zealand business mm. for quite a good uh, price, which left a fairly small Australian business. And uh, so... At the time, my PA that I'd had worked with, uh, Gillian Harris at, at JLG, rang me and said, have you heard Malcolm, who owned Access High, was selling? And uh, so I rang Malcolm and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm selling. So we got in touch, worked it through, and um, went and borrowed a whole lot of money and bought Access High. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll, we'll get into Access High, because this is when the story starts getting interesting. So, Am I talking too much? No, mate, you're doing you perfect. Sure? So, uh, ready hire. So that, that two years where yep. 
red ink all over the PL yep. and then you sold to Steve Donnelly's national hire. Yep. How did you turn that business around? Other than like obviously letting people go, how did you turn well, it around? Well, it's a good question because the the first thing, our biggest customer up there was on rates. You talk about rates. We're on the lowest rates I've ever, ever seen anywhere. And so we up their rates 25%. Uh, they obviously walked away the next day and the next month we had $5,000 more profit on our bottom line than the month before. So clearly we were paying them about $5,000 a month to do their business. We had an 80 foot boom where we were getting about, the lease, we were getting several hundred dollars less a month than the lease payment. So, and, and the other thing I should say, there were some really good people in the company, you know, and there were a couple of salespeople there um, who are still in the industry uh, that did work with me and we you know, were able to get through the right doors and talk to the right people and we picked up new contracts and, and, and we all worked pretty hard you know, to try and pull it all together. So you can't do it by yourself. You know, mm. There's some really good people up there. You know, Karen Donald, who she did the payroll and you know, there, were, there were a lot of people that... Um, uh, that contributed to us getting it back together and yeah so so a lot of people they're scared to piss off their biggest customer because they think that everything's going to turn to shit if they leave that if you're burning cash just to keep them as a customer it's not really worth it well sometimes sometimes when we're looking at new customers for access hire you know they i say to our Salespeople, I'd be it'd be better to write them a check for three thousand dollars a month than take that business. You'd still be maybe six thousand dollars in front, you know. So somewhere you got to work out whether you're making money or losing money. Not every customer is a good customer. Mm. Sometimes the damages can be so high that you know whatever you earn on the front end, you're blowing out the back end. So um, yeah, and they're just value judgments. You know, when you've been kicking around a long time, you can. You know, if, you, if someone said, well, how did you analyze that and calculate it and work it out? <coughs> I couldn't give you the answer, <laughs> you know? Although I, <clears throat> I can, you know, it's a, it's a funny industry, you know? Like people say, how do you, how do you know, how do you work it out? And I recall, you know, during the Brambles times that in New South Wales, the uh, airport extension was being, being proposed and being tendered and it being won and, and, Recky, we're going to have a crack at doing the work up against Coach primarily, you know, in the old days, and and so Brambles, with their accounting philosophies, went around trying to calculate whether it was going to be a profitable job or not. So they tried to work out what machines might be needed on site, and they tried to work out the utilisations, and what, and they worked out it wasn't a very profitable job, so they decided not to tender. And I thought, well. They've sort of forgotten about the lighting tower that goes over and sits in the corner for four years and never gets, you know, like there's so many unseen variables in, in our industry um, that sometimes it's hard to quantify exactly how it all adds up, you know, and sometimes you just need to have that a bit of feel for what's, what's going on. So we, when I saw the 20, you know, that customer that was on a significant discount, it just didn't feel right to me. You know, it just, if I try to analyse it, I don't know what factors I could have put in. It just looked way too cheap. 
you know, and they had a huge amount of our equipment tied up, you know, like it wasn't, yeah. you know, so we were doing a lot of wheel spinning. But, but I guess if I could just step back a bit, like in the 90s recession, we had a lot of site buildings and, and we had about a 20% utilisation on 20, 20 by 10s are a very common size, 20 foot long, 10 foot wide. And I'm not sure what that is in metres. I think it's um, eight by something. Anyway, I made the decision, the executive decision, let's get them out. Let's just get the utilisation up from 20% to whatever. So we spent a lot of money preparing them. You know, and, I, and I looked at the total revenue from that category of equipment at the, where we're at that 20% utilisation. Anyway, we got the utilisation up to 80%. We spent a lot of money getting them ready. We spent a lot of money sending them out. So I went back and had a look. The total revenue had gone down. Wow. Down. So we went from 20% to 80% and we ended up with less revenue than when we started. So the rate we had to do to get them out, because revenue is rate times utilisation. One or other kind of fee. If you get one or other completely wrong, you end up with less revenue. Mm. And that's what happened. So I learned a very valuable lesson that utilisation doesn't necessarily solve the problem no. if the rate's not right. Yeah. So when I went to ready high and you look at the amount of equipment you got tied up at such low rate, regardless of the utilisation, it just wasn't wasn't the right number. So mm. that's interesting it. insight because yeah, it's, if your average rental rates are, are garbage, it doesn't matter if you're at 90%, 100%, doesn't matter. No. Yeah, very interesting. So take out some money and you, you take a risk and you buy Axis Hire? Yes. How many machines did you have uh, back then? Uh, we started with 164, but can I just pay my wife a bit of a tribute? Okay. When, when we, I said to her, what are you prepared to risk? Like it's a family deal, you know? She said everything, but we had a whole, we're lucky enough to have a holiday house and luckily it was in our super fund. She said, everything but the house at Sorrento. It's not bad backing. It's pretty good. You know, if your partner says she's got your, your back. So anyway, just wanted to let, because I've... Props. <laughs> just throwing some props out there. I just want to make sure, because there have been so many times when I've had an opportunity to stand up in front of and I've had a little bit of success here and there, and I've been up, even at the higher conventions when I've been given nice things, and, and I historically am horrible at forgetting to... Today we've remembered. Today we've remembered to thank Jan, my wife, who's just awesome. Thank you, Jan. Thank you, Jan. <laughs> so I want that on record. Um, yeah, so we borrowed... Well, if you, take the, uh, if you take the vendor finance that was in the deal, about $3 million, And we bought 164 machines. And, and it was, they were a bit tight, you know. Other people had looked at it and thought Malcolm wanted too much money. But having spent the time putting the wheels back on at ready high, I realised that it wouldn't matter what the condition of it was, I could make it work. You know, we'd find a way through it. So, so yeah, we borrowed, managed to borrow the money, some from the bank, some from Malcolm. Malcolm was gone, kind enough to leave some money in for us and, uh, yeah, started work. Wow. And so today, how many machines do you have? Uh, well, as of today, we've got about 640 maybe, a couple more. Wow, and I um, I hear a rumor that you have a rock climbing wall 
at your branch. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, not no, not technically at the branch, Mark. Okay. <laughs> All right. Where, where is this rock climbing? Well, we've got a we've got a uh, factory where we keep a few of the toys and bits and pieces, and uh, yeah, my wife and I built it. Okay. Ground up. And uh, yeah, so it's a rock climbing wall. Yeah. It's 7.3 metres high and about 3.6 metres wide and primarily for the grandkids. But, you know, uh, my daughter's taken some of her girlfriends there to have a play and we've had the relatives come over and yeah, so it's uh, nice. built to international standards, read the uh, international... <laughs> all the right stuff, you know, all the right stuff. <laughs> well, that was something I remember when I first met you, how... Uh, involved you were in in sport and just like bike riding and all that sort of stuff so yep. has fitness always been something that's been in your life the whole time it has yeah yeah I started bike riding racing push bikes when I was eight years old um, my dad was a plumber and a builder and he'd hurt his shoulder playing footy once and there was a really strong bike riding club in my hometown of Langatha. And so, yeah, so we just started racing bikes when I was a kid. And I did that summer and winter until I was 15 and had a bit of success at various levels. Um, and then I got sick of bike, you know, summer and winters, bike riding's hard. It's hard. <laughs> if anyone's wondering, it's a hard sport. It's a very individual sport. And uh, so I decided to go and play footy with my mates. And I did that for 15 years. So. And when I gave footy away after 15 years and I coached for a year, uh, and I had a bit of success with footy, so, you know, um, played in a couple of grand finals, which was nice. I uh, went and had a go at triathlons because I'd always had marathon running. So had a bit of a crack at that for a while. Mm. And fun runs, you know, like you... 10k runs and yeah so always in always just fun been a runs. bit yeah, yeah 10K, just, it's just fun just just a casual 10k <laughs> well you know <laughs> well, and then so then my son was um Travi was playing footy and he wasn't enjoying it that much and i said to him well do you want to go and give bike riding a crack you know so off we went and we've sort of been doing that ever since really that was he was maybe uh 12 or 13 at that stage might have been 12 and yeah so we've been off bike racing together for ever since and we've both done Ironman triathlons in that time. We, we about three years ago, we went and did a six day mountain bike race in New Zealand together. So yeah, just crazy. You know, <laughs> crazy. And yeah, you know, we still ride Monday, you know, we, we rode, I rode four days last weekend, Monday through to Thursday and uh, Travi and I rode together on three of those days and my son-in-law rides with us. He's doing an MBA at the moment. So when he's not studying, we, we ride as well. And so, yeah, it's a nice it's and so a do you family think, connection. Like, all that athletic work and bike riding and whatnot, like if you had to stop it all today, yeah. what impact do you think would that have on your life? Do you think it plays a big impact in keeping you mentally strong as well? Oh, uh, I don't think there's much doubt. You know, bike riding is a really tough sport. So when you start at such a young age, there's only one way you get to the, be over the line first, and that's been got to be tough, you know? And you have to train hard, you know, like all, you know, the Ironman triathlon, for example, the hardest part's the training, doing, mm. the, doing the actual event. Yeah. You, you think that's hard, but, the, you know, like I used to go to the pool, you know, at seven o'clock at night after I'd, some days I'd ridden to Sorrento, back was 180 k's, and then I'd run 14 k's when I got back and then go to the pool that night, you know. Sometimes I'd be asleep when the when the guy turned up, so you know some of that mental toughness is not a bad thing. And um, but the other thing, you know, like my son works pretty hard, you know, and 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 
I've often said to him, you know, like when you're fit, you know, when you're not fit, you get to about one o'clock some days when you work hard and you just, you know, you run out of steam. But when you're really fit, you get to one o'clock and you're still tired, but you've got the energy to keep going. You know, you've got that resilience to sort of make it through and... Especially if you have to ride home after work as well. Well, I don't want to. I don't, I'm a morning, I train early in the morning and then go to work. Uh, and then yeah. I, can't, I, a, I really have trouble uh, finding the energy at the end of all the, the whole day yeah, to yeah, get yeah. out and train hard. So I get it done early. You can yeah. imagine. And so family still involved in the business? Yeah, daughter's in the business. Yeah, yeah. My Jade, Jade, my daughter's been in the business for about 12 years. And a fair bit of that time she's been working at home with kids and... Um, but she pays all the bills, which for me is, uh, uh, you know, very important. You know, we only have, you know, you hear so many uh, stories where people have had other people working for them and the money went missing. And, uh, you know, when your daughter's paying the bills, you feel you sleep well at night. Finger on the pulse. Finger on the pulse. And she pays the wages. And, and, and she's recently come back into the business, you know, working at the office and, and we're sort of tag-teaming a little bit. Where when she's there, I've got a little bit more flexibility. So yeah, mm. it's, it's really good. And how has your fleet changed over that that period as well? Sorry, how's my what? The, the fleet, your equipment. Uh, well, we just keep you know like we just keep buying what our customers need. Basically, you know, like we're driven by demand. I, I've never thought that I was clever enough to be able to predict what the what the next bit looked like. Um, I've been a bit more speculative on a couple of things recently, you know, like the Athena Jibby boom lift was, uh, I saw that at Balmer at the show and thought it looked pretty good. And so we took a bit of a punt on that and it seems to have worked out. Our customers really like it. Mm. So, uh, but I, I've used, um, one of my approaches has always been to rehire when the customer wants it. And if they want it enough, you go and buy it to fill the gap. And it seems to have worked fairly well for us. I don't, I've never thought I was clever enough to work out what they want, so rushing off and buying a whole lot of stuff in advance, hoping they might need it, it's never been my go. Mm. I, I'd rather wait till you build the demand and then go and purchase it to, to fill the fill the gap. Mm. So, yeah. And are your customers <clears throat> asking more about electric machines? Is that something? That... Uh, not yet, although there's a big group. I, I read a lot of the international rental magazines and access magazines and and try and keep in touch with the, what's happening around the world generally. You know, because of my involvement with JLG, you just meet a lot of people and so you like to just keep in touch with what everybody's doing. And there's a real strong green movement. You know, you look at bowls in Europe have said they're going to be green by 2030. Um, so I went and did a add up of how many electric machines we had, Mark, just to work out where we stood and something like 92% of our fleet is electric. Wow. So that's a, a good start. Um, we've got solar being put on our factory at work today to try and do our bit there. Um, I'm not professing that I'm the leading green person <laughs> in the world. <laughs> Jan and my wife would laugh at these comments, but um, uh, but you know it'll be interesting. I think I think it's we're we're close. Ninety two percent we're close, and I think you know we with our fleet we could. We could uh, be, you know, we could probably hit a 2030 target if we, uh, with our uh, environmental commitment to being zero emissions by then, if if we had to. And I'm just not sure. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of hydrogen talk. There's a lot of, you know, I'm just not sure where all the electricity is coming from. You know, if we all go 
uh, electric cars, you know, where some summers we're struggling to meet the air, run our air conditioners and yet if you put a million cars a year on the road that are electric, we could be, uh, there's some real challenges mm, coming out of that whole environmental area. But yeah, I think we're, as a, as a business, we th I think we're well down the path for um, being able to, if, if the pressure came, we, our customers said, if you're not 2030, you know, if you're not green by 2030, then you won't be getting our business, then we're pretty close. Mm. We're, we're close enough to be able to manage it, I think. So, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So I want to talk about discounting yep. and pricing. So maybe let's break it down in a very simple way. You buy a new machine. How do you typically figure out the price? Or how should, what do you think is the standard for figuring out what the rate should be on a daily, weekly, monthly rate? Well, one of the theories is price taker or price maker. And I think, I think, this is a long story, Mark. You haven't got time for the full story, I no, don't Give think. me the cut down version. <laughs> <laughs> the long version is that we live in an oligopoly where any one player of enough size, which is most people, if they hit your customer with a price that's say 10% or more below your price, there's a really high risk you're gonna lose your customer. So we, we aim to be competitive in the market. We aim to be uh, within the zero to 10% range. So we're getting more for our good service and our good performance. Uh, but we're always cautious never to be more than 10% outside the range because you're probably gonna lose that business if you're not careful. Does that explain it in the very simple... Yeah, but I think also, like, if you buy a machine for $50,000, how yeah. would you calculate what you think the rate should be? Like, uh, are you... You were talking before about doing the finance yep. calculations, all that sort of stuff. So, like, for someone that's never been in the industry before, that's listening to the podcast, wants to know, hey, how did you come up with that daily rate? Like, what are, what are some of the basic numbers, do you think, that businesses should be following to, to try and calculate the ROI on equipment? Well... Well, one of the things I've done the NAB business survey thing for 20 years. And one of the things they ask me is, oh, what hurdle rate do you use for your investments? Right? And I go, well, some of the rates are so low that if you do try and do your ROI on the current rate on the current capital, they don't add up. So the way we manage our business is that we have older assets that primarily pay for the new assets until such point as the asset value on the older ones start to get written down to a point where they are successful. Mm. Now, I'm sure there's some accountants out there that just cringe. I was going to say. Ducked under the table. <laughs> what is this guy talking about? <laughs> but I have financial models that if you plug the numbers in on the current rate, current capital, you know, and it, keep in mind that some of the big guys buy significantly for significantly less than us, mm. you know. So their capital cost on a 90 foot scissor might be two or $3,000 less. So if we try and set a, you know, if we set a hurdle rate of a return on investment on our purchase price and then try and compete with that price against others, uh, you're probably not going to get the work. Mm. So you've got to be mindful of where you sit in the market. And what, what should a payback period typically be? Like what, what would be the normal well, set? Well, it used to be when interest rates were in the sort of 8 9%, you know, if it was around 130 weeks, 115, 130 weeks uh, payback. 
So whatever your weekly rate is, mm-hmm. times 130 weeks, which should pay back your asset, mm-hmm. roughly. Yeah, and then, so you mentioned before that you would you want to keep within that 10%, and then you keep the customer through service. Yep. So, like, what would you define as good service? Like, what does that actually mean to your customer? Uh, well, we try and talk to our customers about making their job easy. Our job is to make their job easy. So that that includes um, getting there on time. That includes not breaking down. That includes, you know, all our stuff has got to be checked every 90 days. Um, but, you know, then we try and add value. We've got products that other people don't have, you know. Um, and, and, you know, I guess through my... There's been times where some of our uh, bigger customers need support with... Australian standard sort of stuff you know mm-hmm. so because of my background I'm able to assist where others might find it tough you know so mm-hmm. it's the value add that you provide to your customers for me you know we're, we're here to make our customers life easy you know and and to, we're a small part of their overall you know like rental is we think we're the, the main game we're not the main game mm-hmm. we're here to supply them and supply their people with something to get their job done and and that means, you know, the, there's the big. If our machine breaks down, the cost of our machine is microscopic compared to the cost of the labour of the person who's sitting on it. Mm. So the downtime can kill you. It, it could kill them. You know, if they have regular breakdown, 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 the the lost production and the cost of that, you know, the labour sitting on that machine, relative to the cost of the machine. Um, we pale into insignificance. So our job is to make sure they get what they want on time, and you know, and, and we supply a service where we go and make sure they get the right machine for the mm-hmm. job. You know, because the freight cost these days is quite high as well. So if you send the wrong stuff out, the biggest cost is getting the get the swapping it out and get the right stuff out there. So we spend a lot of time working with our customers to make sure they get the right thing, and and we don't give them stuff that's too big. You know, where they're paying more for what they than what they really need so it's a whole package of caring about your customers yeah, basically yeah. you know if, if you really hard, care it's hard to work with a business like why would someone want to work with them like that's like probably the key thing here. Yeah? the fact yeah. that you you make as you said make your customers life easy like they, yeah. they call up they just want a machine does the machine arrive on time does it work does it fit the purpose if you want to pick it up they can't pick it up like all that sort of stuff exactly. billing is accurate based on what you agreed on the rental exactly. contract Exactly, and we, we've got a philosophy, and I hope that our people share this, that if they're good enough to ring us, then we make the effort to look after them. You know, like we've, we supply a lot of battery electric stackers now for our customers. Now, we don't own any, but about two years ago, they started ringing us, and, and all of a sudden, we went from sort of hiring one every three months, and now we have, we've had up to 15 on, on rehire. Mm. And they're such a unique sort of, bit of equipment where they have different sizes and different weights and there's so many variables that I don't really want to own the variables you know because the day they want one I'll have one sitting there that's not quite the right size and I have to go and rehire it anyway so I, I make a strategic decision not to own them um, although when I was with Rec Air, we owned them and I've been, I'm familiar with them I know what know what they do I know how they work I know where they fit in the industry and all that sort of stuff but I don't want to own them which People might think it's a bit weird, but um, so, but the customers want to ring us. We get it for them. We supply it. 
we service it when it's on site, we look after it and we take it back when it's finished. And so for some reason the customers have found it more convenient to ring us to solve that problem than to go to the specialist forklift people who have battery electric out. I'm not sure why. I'm hoping that it's because we do a good job and we solve their problem. Mm. And if they're good enough to ring us to solve their problem, then we'll solve it for them. But I'm not sure. Yeah. So, some so, so another thing I want to touch on, you mentioned like the word rehire, sub-hire, cross-hire, it's probably a few different terminologies there. Yep. How, do you, how do you manage a good relationship from a sub-hire standpoint? With the competitor, you mean? Yeah. Uh, well, we try and be nice people. <laughs> <laughs> I've just heard so many stories of people getting burnt because they start making so much more money off the sub-hire and then they almost just cut them off. Not naming any companies, but you know what I mean? Like, oh, uh, I've done that. Yeah? There's people we don't hire to because they don't pay. Well, it's not that they don't pay. Uh, like, for example, like if you were sub-hiring a particular type of machine that you didn't want to own mm -hmm. and you were making a lot of money and then your competitor saw that you were making money off that and they said, we're no longer going to give you that machine because you're making too much money. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that like you're sort of cutting off the knees of like your competitors just because you control the asset. Um, so I guess it's how do you how do you foster those relationships to agree on rates and whatnot to to make it like equal for everyone? Well, we work we work together. Like the, there's it's quite common. You know, we we have sort of a set of rates, and then when we we have a sort of a rehire rate, and then but often. Um, Within reason, they'll, they'll say to us, look, we've had to do this rate to look after our customer. Can you help us out and so we can make at least some money on it or break even on it? Now, you know, we had a call the other day where the rate was so low, we said, no, we're not doing that. That's just not a fair, that's not a market rate. That's ridiculous. We're not, we're not helping you with that. Mm. Um, but most of the time we try and help them and then similarly, they help us. So, yeah, it's just a matter of, yeah, building Talking relationships. Yeah. I think, yeah, like most people outside of the rental industry don't realise how connected all yeah. the businesses are. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's quite unique compared to other industries, yeah. I think. It's not to say we don't have our issues from time to time, Mark. We've had issues, you know. <laughs> it's not all green and roses. <laughs> no. no. Uh, you know, and we... we uh, you know, like I've been to VCAT where one of the competitors, you know, I won't go into the detail, but they took us to VCAT and thought there was um, there was an issue and we didn't think there was and fortunately we won we won that, you know, and, and they shouldn't have taken us to VCAT. But but that's where it can get to sometimes and, and you know. A v VCAT? What, what? VCAT, oh, Vic, VCAT is the Victorian Civil Administrative Tribunal. Mm. So it's sort of a court where instead of going to the magistrate's court or the you know the federal court or you know it's a court that can has a jurisdiction to decide over civil disputes okay yeah and they can make a decision i think i know what story this is but we yeah, won't talk yeah, about yeah, it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so so if you're having a blue with someone rather than go to court yeah. you know because courts have a financial um setting you know over 200,000 it's magistrate up to 200 magistrates mm. over that you've got to go you know um county court you know so so vcat is for sorting out smaller matters without clogging up the courts with these sure. smaller matters you know and this matter was three thousand dollars you know where they want to charge us for damage to a machine that 
that weren't our responsibility. It was their poor maintenance of the machine that caused the issue in the first place. Mm. And we managed to uh, uh, sort that out. But then there have been other... I've had legal notices not so long ago from one that said, you know... And, and that it, was in, it was, they were, again... Um, it wasn't the right information that they were working off. So, just business. Yeah. You know, you just got to work it out. And, and you know, if you, my, my, you know, like we, we, uh, one of the things that I've always prided myself in is being ethical. You know, like if you're fair and ethical and you play with a straight bat every day of the week, um, then you sleep well at nights. Yeah. You know? Yeah, don't, and don't stub anyone on the back or burn anyone. And I yeah. don't, I don't do dodgy stuff. So if I'm saying it's not, I want to inspect this rock climbing wall, but I feel like there's some dodgy. <laughs> sorry, sorry, what you say? So I want to inspect this rock climbing wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. Oh, no, no, it's all good. But talking about the industry, so uh, you have been heavily involved in the hire rental industry yes. association. So, what involvement have you had over your career? Uh, within the group? Well, the hire and rental, like, uh, Rec Air was involved in the hire and rental industry when I was a young guy, you know, so I used to go along to the meetings and all that sort of thing. I probably um, became more involved when I was the Vice President and General Manager of JLG, you know, because uh, you're a significant player in the industry in that, in that role. So I was on the executive back then for, mm. for quite a long time. Um, as a, an OEM, you have sort of a different role to play. You know, you're there to provide um, knowledge and experience and backing and, and that sort of stuff. But um, And then I went out of it when I was with uh, uh, Ready Hire for a while. And then when I bought back into um, Access Hire, it, it was at a time when there was a fair bit of craziness with rates in the industry and... And I made a decision that perhaps with my experience and background, I might be able to provide some stability, you know, by in the industry, just by being the Victorian state manager and getting involved at, at, at that local level, and um, which I did. And that gets you onto the next, you know, as the state mm. president, you get onto the, the national executive, so to speak. And yeah, and it sort of just went from there, really. I, yeah. you know, I... Uh, and, and you get a lot of value from attending like the conventions and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, you know, I was talking to people that we had meetings last week, and I was talking to people. There was a gentleman came out from. He'd been the president of the American Rental Association, and and he came out to one of our conventions, and he and he said in his speech that he said someone said to him that you'll get more out of being involved in the association than what you put in, and. And I think he's right. You know, I've, I feel like you put in a fair bit, but, but your involvement and your, uh, your awareness of the industry and your knowledge about what's going on and all that sort of thing pays back in spades, really. Like, it's just, uh, uh, you know, people talk about networking. Um, I, I'm not a great networker, but by being involved in the association and, and I've been involved with the HRIA with the Personal Property Security Act and mm. Gary Kerr, we've done a lot of work to, uh, uh, I should pay kudos to Gary Kerr while well, I got the opportunity. He's a legend. <laughs> right. Talk no. about legends. Yeah. He's a legend. He He's, uh, 
He's an inspiration um, and he's done an awesome job in leading the charge on the Personal Property Security Act. Uh, but, but just being involved in, in all of those things, you know, that gives you opportunity, you go to Canberra and you're involved in talking to politicians. So, so by being involved in the association, you get experience that you, you know, and you're involved at board level, so you get board mm. experience. So if there's anybody out there listening about whether you should or shouldn't, um, you know, and, and Ash uh, Wood, Woodcock has just joined uh, as the Victorian president of the HRIA, and he's a, a brilliant young guy, you know, and the experience he's going to get out of board levels and all that sort of stuff will be, you know, it's stuff you, you spend a lot of money trying to get it elsewhere, you know, to get that experience and the involvement. So, yeah, I, I, I've, you know, got a lot out of it. Yeah. Uh, put then, a lot in. So, And then even from a junior level, like I know you're involved in their mentoring program and the women yeah. in higher programs, so like, like yes. also giving back to the next generation as well. Yeah, well, that's been, um, been yeah, really interesting. Like, you, you know, and I encourage other mentors out there if they're thinking about it because, you know, like it was great being involved in the women in higher program because, you know, you learn so much about young women you know, and how they think about things and how they sort of see their careers. And, um, you know, it's been really valuable valuable for me. I mean, I'm hoping that they get something out of being involved with me as well. But but, um, but it's a two-way thing. And I think the, the women in hire program and the young professionals, the, big, the biggest part for them as well is missing with their peers, you know, and, and hearing other people. You know, mm. they might have some insecurities about certain things and they'll see that, you know, even the the higher achievers in the industry have the same sort of um, concerns or issues that they're trying to deal with. So, it's uh, yeah, they're both great programs, really good programs, and um, I'd encourage mentors and mentees if they think about it to uh, have a crack. You know, mm. it's it's uh, and, and you meet a lot of other. You know, even when I meet the other mentors, you you learn a lot from them, and you never stop learning. You know, there's always. Yeah. something interesting you know it's yeah and it's also just getting in a perspective of the next generation as well absolutely yeah like if i could just share one of the things that was a light bulb moment for me like as a young male you know like when you're w- working your way through your career that you, you would never quite finish the job you were doing and then another opportunity would come up and you weren't quite ready for that other opportunity either but you go oh I'm just going for it, you know, I'm just going for it. Just, you knew you hadn't finished and developed as much as you should have in, say, the sales role, but a branch manager's role come up and you knew you weren't ready quite for that either. Mm. Uh, I'm just going for it. You know, where young ladies have a different, pers- well, this is what I've learned. They might tell me I've got this completely off the planet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, let's hear Tim. So young women. What were, Tim, what were you thinking? <laughs> that is not what we know. Anyway, but... Young ladies, they want to make sure they've completed the job they're in and they want to make sure that they're completely ready for the next job before they'll move, move on, you know. And I can tell you, but from pers- recent personal experience, I think that that is correct. You know, they don't want to leave behind anything that's unfulfilled and unfinished because they're worried about their team and they don't want to leave, you know, anything behind that's mm. not quite right. And they're nervous about whether they're really ready for the next stage. You know, they'd rather be, make sure they're properly ready for it before they'll jump into the next role. And um, I like my advice to them is just go for it. But, you know, yeah. that's a well, male there's, perspective. Well, there's a couple of things there. It's A, they, those sort of people, I'm sure there's males and females in that category, need to be reassured that sure. 
you can do it. You can do it. Put yourself exactly. out there. It's a great learning experience. Exactly. And then there's also a group of people that need to learn that you should never like leave a trail behind you yeah. as well. Well, that's the critical. I, I counsel young people, if you are moving, make sure that you don't drop your bundle on the one you're in at the moment, you know, because I've seen people who get a promotion and they just let what they're doing fall away completely. And mm -hmm. all that... All that people remember is what a terrible job they did just before they left because they didn't care anymore. Yeah. And you know, make sure you give 110% on the on the way out this is really critical, I think. Man. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. So a couple more questions. Yeah. Um, over your career, who do you think has played a, a big influence on you from a mentor perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. I've heard you ask this question it's of one of the one of the standard of people, <laughs> a lot of people, and I've I've contemplated. Well. I don't think I've had, I've had some really good um, learning experiences along the way. Like when I was a young guy, I worked on a farm with a chap named Bruce Douglas once, and he was hard as nails, you know. I was up at four in the morning milking cows. Um, I was hoeing rushes all day, and I was milking cows three till six o'clock at night, exhausted, when I was, you know, 18 years old. And mm. so he taught me how to work. You know, so I've had a lot, been very lucky to have a lot of people along the journey that, that I've learnt some very valuable lessons from. Like Ray Kelsey, for example, was the managing director of, of Rec Air when I was in Latrobe Valley running the, the mall branch for Rec Air. And I, I probably should qualify a little bit that I did a major psych test once and the psychologist said, you're a very, very, very independent person. <laughs> and I'm gone. You're probably... Uh, anyway, but so, so I've had a sort of independence and resilience. And, mm -hmm. um, but I, so I'd be sitting in the Latrobe Valley, you know, and you'd run into a problem. And from my experience, a lot of managers pick up the phone and ask their boss, what the hell am I going to do, you know? Where I'd sit there and I'd think, what would Ray Kelsey do? You know, Ray Kelsey was the managing director. There's no one above him to, for him to ring. He's the boss, he's number one. If I was Ray Kelsey, what would I do? So I'd sit back. Usually there's only three or four options. In my experience, there's probably only two that are viable. Make a decision. So I'd sit back and I'd think, well, Ray would have to make a decision because there's no one for him to ask, so I'm just going to make, I'll just make a decision. Yeah, and, and then own and, the decision, yeah? And own it. Yeah. Get on with the job, you know. So, um, but you know, but but also you you take on board people, you know. Like I learned from a lot of people, you know. Like I've learned from Ray Kelsey. You know, he was a calm guy, and he was a really a good leader. And uh, um, you know, Max Williams, for example, who came in with Brambles, and he taught me that there's always tomorrow. You know, often when you're in the middle of a, a issue, and, and I, just sit back. You know, you don't have to belt yourself up today, mm -hmm. sleep on it, it'll still be there tomorrow. You know, so there's there's a whole lot of learnings from a whole lot of people that you sort of take take on board and, uh, yeah, make the most of it sort of stuff. And so if you could give some advice to the next generation of leaders in their mid to early 20s, yep. what would you say to them? Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is education. You know, and, and check, like, there's a... Young people, I've often said to young people, do you know what the glass ceiling is? And they go, oh, I don't know what that is. You know, well, the glass ceiling is some invisible thing that prevents you from progressing. And 
Like I did two years of an arts degree at the Gippsland Institute, wasn't going anywhere. Sociology, psychology, economics, politics, wonderful subjects. You know, you learn, you know, good, good, um, took off, went back when I was 33 and did a business management degree. Now, I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't put in the hard yards on my education. In fact, when I got the state manager's job at Rec Air, Max Williams said to me, if I hadn't been studying for my degree, I wouldn't have got the job. Now, if I hadn't got that job, then I wouldn't have got the JLG job, I wouldn't have got the Ready Eye job, and I wouldn't have been where I am today. And I wouldn't understand business to the extent that I do if I hadn't done a business management degree. Yeah. So the first thing, if I was a young 20-year-old, I'd check my education, and if it's not quite where you think it should be, then go back to uni or go back and you know, develop your education. Mm. That would be my number one. You know, I think Scotty Daly in... Yeah, in you referenced his, that. He said that you were influential in making... Yep. Guided him to do his MBA, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is while he was yeah. with you guys, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it was when he was working with us, he started doing that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that yeah. was nice to hear. Yeah. And finally, so how does Tim Nuttall define success? Yes, well, that's another one that I've been contemplating since. You <laughs> knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was coming. You listened to the new podcast episode. And I've got the best. That, no, no, no. So for me, well, for me, success is about achieving your goals. You know, like to do a six-day mountain bike race in New Zealand with your son and finish it, um, for me, that's success. You know, to have your family healthy and happy, you know, uh, to do an Ironman triathlon. I had, a, I had a set of goal when I was in corporate life to do an Ironman triathlon. I crossed it off because I didn't think I'd ever get there, you know. Um, you know, to have, have a company that... Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about hard to get people at the moment, you know, hard to find people to work for you. And we, we've got a, a good, really good group of people working for us and and I think they like coming to work, you know, which is good. So to have a company where people enjoy coming to work and, and we have a family first policy, you know, so if you've got family issues, they come first, you know. So to ha be able to, you know, for me, success is about, you know, achieving your goals and and... You know, I've got a bit of a theory, Mark, that, you know, they don't count the score on your life until you're pushing up poppies. Okay. <laughs> That's when they count. <laughs> until then, the, the game's still on, you yeah. know? You're still, you're still playing the game. And uh, so, you know, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a guy up buried up in a cemetery up in Walhalla, which is an old mining town where my grandmother lived in 1913, you know? And uh, his name's Dendy. And there's a dendy street in Brighton that's named after him. He died a pauper in the in the Walhalla, and he's buried in the Walhalla, and he died broke. So success is an intangible, you know, like it's it's mm. personal, you know. Um, it's not about how much money you've got. It's about whether you're achieving the things that you think are important in life and whether you're contributing. And yeah, so it's. it's I don't know whether that answers your question. <laughs> no, it's good, mate. It's good. It's good. All right, Tim. Well, look, as I said, I really appreciate um, what you've given to the industry over, over your career. And you're clearly one of, one of the good guys, I think. Um, and, yeah, thank you for coming on the Rental Journal podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. It's been awesome. Yeah.